Well, in 1992, a man by the name of Jerry Conangelo, an incredibly wealthy businessman from Arizona, and a sports team owner of a couple different sports franchises was given the task of taking over USA basketball. And USA basketball is different than NBA basketball. USA basketball is the official Olympic Basketball Association. This is the organization that puts together the team that will represent the United States in what was the upcoming 1992 Olympics. And Jerry Conangelo was tired of watching the Americans lose badly. Here we are, a superpower. Here we are, the nation that created and invented this game of basketball. And as we would go out onto the world stage, we would lose, and we would lose badly. And Jerry Conangelo said this, he said, the reason why is we are playing the world's best without playing our best. And he did something that nobody ever thought was possible. He talked the NBA into waiving their players' ability to enter into Olympic play. And what he would do in the, the days before the 1992 Olympics would be something that sports fans will never forget. He would form the team that we know as the dream team. The dream team, which would be made up of 12 individuals, 11 of them who are now Hall of Famers, this team is coined the dream team because many believe that it is the best sports team ever assembled. Now, let's just understand, when you look at that, even some of you who are novices with regards to basketball know some of these players. They are the who's who of basketball. You've got Charles Barkley, Carl Malone, David Robinson. You've got Patrick Ewing. I don't know who that guy is. Scottie Pippen, Michael Jordan, Larry Bird, Magic Johnson, uh, Chris Mullins, Clyde Drexler, John Stockton. By the way, that sole player that we don't know, that's Christian Leitner, the only college basketball player on the dream team. This team was so great, was so amazing that they would win against all of their competitors during the 1992 Olympics by an average margin of victory of over 50 points. Their largest margin of victory would come in the quarterfinals of the medal round where they would beat a team by over 90 points. They decimated their opponents. And let's just be honest, we knew that. If you were there in 1992, I was a, a sophomore in high school, I remember when they named the dream team, I said there is nobody who's gonna come close to beating this team. This team has the pedigree, it has the resume, it has the history of greatness. There's nobody on this earth that's gonna be able to stop them. We knew that. And it became true. Well, 2,000 years ago, another dream team was formed. Jesus would call 12 men. 11 of them would become future Hall of Famers. One, like the original dream team, we don't even want to mention. But this dream team was far from anybody saying that they were going to be champions when they were put together for the very first time by Rabbi Jesus, by Teacher Jesus. 
If you were a novice to the Bible and you didn't know any of the story and you approached the Bible for the very first time, really about 80% of the way through the Gospels, you would be like, this is the worst team ever assembled by anyone. This is the gang that can't shoot straight. This is a muttering group of imbeciles, buffoons, who have Jesus, the God-man, right before them, and they're arguing and fighting about who's greatest in the kingdom when they don't have a clue about what's going on spiritually. And yet, what both secular historians, even the most skeptical of them, and the most devout sacred historians will say of this original dream team, no group of people have ever put such an impact on the world. In fact, one secular historian said, like them or not, believe in them or not, you cannot take away the idea that these men changed the history of the world. They were unlearned, they were unpolished, most of them were uneducated, and yet under the tutelage and the training and, and, and the living life close to Jesus, they would be transformed. For the next two months, we are going to go on a journey under this heading, follow me. And we're gonna look individually at each of the disciples. We're gonna look at what made them tick. We're gonna look at their personalities. We're gonna look at their experiences. And we're gonna see all about them. But at the end of it all, I hope and pray that what we do is that we don't just look at them, but what we do each and every week, including today, is we would look at ourselves. And we would ask the question, number one, have I first and foremost obeyed God's command through Jesus Christ to follow Jesus? And if I haven't, now's the day to do so. We're going to hear 12 stories of individuals who followed that command and their lives were changed. But then we have to ask, if I made that decision, if I have accepted that calling as a follower of Jesus Christ, how am I doing today with that? And are the experiences of the disciples, these first disciples, do they help me into understanding maybe what I'm experiencing do they have godly examples? Do they have ways that maybe I should steer clear of in following Christ and giving him the glory as the one who's the anthem of my heart and the anchor of my soul? So let's dig into these 12 disciples. We're gonna focus in here in a moment on Peter, but let's understand the 12 disciples. There were 12 of them, and we need to understand a, a couple things about them. As we approach the 12 disciples, these guys that changed the world, for many of us in the church, right away, we say, yeah, I know a lot about the disciples, and here's why. We've studied Jesus, and if you study Jesus in the Gospels, the disciples are there, so we're able to, as we study Jesus, see the disciples, but we many times don't really know that we don't know as much as we think we know about them. If I was to ask you, let's start naming the 12 disciples, I think a great many of us would struggle. We would get Peter, we would get James and John, uh, we might get Andrew, Thomas, and then it starts getting fuzzy. We get, we get the bad guy, Judas, 
So he got six of them down, but then it really becomes difficult. And, and, and I just want to applaud what's happening right now in the other part of the building, our, our classes that are going on for kids. And you wonder, what are the things that are happening? At a very young age, you're, you're being taught things. You're being taught truths that, that you never, never leave you. When I was a young boy in Sunday school class, one of my teachers taught me a song to remember the disciples. And any time that I'm ever having to remember the disciples, especially as I was preparing for this series, I found myself going back to this song. It went like this. There were 12 disciples. Jesus called to help him. Simon Peter, Andrew, James's brother, John, Philip, Thomas, Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus. See, you didn't even know that. Thaddeus, who's he? Simon, Judas, and Bartholomew. And then it goes, and he is calling you. He is calling you. We are his disciples. I am one. Are you? And so, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, one. Yeah. That was that pause to wait. I've said it in each of the service. That's my audition for the worship team. Josh keeps telling me, you can audition till the cows come home, stick to preaching. So I heard he has difficulty moving this pulpit. This pulpit's not heavy at all, by the way. Okay, brother? It's not heavy at all, man. Okay? So you can sing and play the guitar, but I can lift the pulpit, all right? Some of you are totally lost right now. And it's just my proof that I did listen to Josh's sermon, okay? I saw it, and he did a great job. But, but it's not so that I can audition. And, and listen, it's not even the fact to make myself look, look super spiritual or anything. I, I want you to know, we may not know the names, what we wanna know is how did Jesus transform these guys? And what transformed in their lives? Because if I can get to that place, if I can see how Jesus does this transforming work in ordinary people, well then I'll start seeing Jesus' transforming work in me. And that's what I want us to do, to see in the disciples ourselves, to put ourselves there. But to do so, we will run two extremes. I want you to write this down somewhere in your outline, and that is this. The first approach we have when we approach the disciples is this. We will exalt them to a superhuman place. We will exalt them to a superhuman place. And let's face it, these guys, they walked with Jesus, they talked with Jesus, and as they learned from Jesus, they healed people they exercised demons. They stood in front of great groups and preached. They martyred themselves for the faith. I mean, these guys are the Mount Rushmore of Christians. And what can happen is, is we can start in what we do right away, and there's nothing inherently wrong with it, but it's what we think when we do it. We put the phrase saint in front of them. Now, the word saint is called out once, separated once. We're all saints, the Bible tells us. But when we put saint and put a capital letter in front of it, we begin to elevate them. Now listen, these guys should be elevated in some ways. The Bible calls them the pillar of the church. But what we begin to do is say, these guys, they're something altogether out of this world. And we begin to 
exalt them to a place that I don't think they want to be. One writer put it this way when he said this, if you've ever visited the great cathedrals in Europe, you might assume that the apostles or the disciples were larger than life, stained glass saints with shining halos who represented an exalted degree of spirituality. It's a shame they have so often been put on pedestals as magnificent marble figures or portrayed in paintings like some kind of Roman gods. That dehumanizes them. They were just 12 completely ordinary men, perfectly human in every way. We mustn't lose touch with who they really were. And so maybe some of you are, 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 are elevating these individuals to a place you shouldn't. And what happens is you elevate them and then you think the things that they did you, never, you could never do. The things they said you could never say. The things they accomplished you could never accomplish because they're out of this world and you're of this world. The second extreme that you can have is you can go from, and some people do it, they see the exaltation of all these great saints and here's a, a big uh, word, we eviscerate them. That is, we critically and uh, harshly criticize them. And we look at their lives and we say, man, these guys walked with Jesus. He did all these amazing things, and yet when the going gets tough, they run, they fail. We point out their weaknesses, and we use their strengths against them. Skeptics will do this often. John Lennon was asked about Jesus and he said this, Jesus was all right, but his disciples were thick and ordinary. It's them twisting it that ruins it for me. And so what inevitably happens is, is we say, yeah, we really like Jesus, but, but the disciples, they got it all wrong. They messed things up. And, and some of us will read this and maybe not with the skeptical eyes that Lennon did, but we might, even in a Christian response, look at these examples. And we can do this with Peter especially. Thomas, we'll see in a couple weeks, uh, we'll see it in him, where we approach it and we're like, how, how could that person say that? How could they do that? They saw Jesus do all these awesome things. They heard Jesus preach. And this is what we say. Had I been there, I would have believed had I been there, then I would proclaim and preach and, and I would step out in faith. What was these guys' problems? Why were they missing it? Now, what we have in the Bible is the ability to merge those two extremes into a, a very uh, middle ground. Here's what another writer says when they say the middle ground. It's significant that the scriptures doesn't cover their defects. The point is not to portray them as super holy luminaries or to elevate them above mere mortals. If that were the aim, there'd be no reason to record their character flaws. But instead of whitewashing the blemishes, Scripture seems to make a great deal of their human weaknesses. It's a brilliant reminder that our faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And so here we have this balanced approach. So how are we to approach this? Write this down in your outline, and, and we're gonna finish up with the disciples and pivot to Peter here in a moment. What are we to do with the disciples? We are to use the disciples, write this down, as powerful examples for us to examine and to emulate. We are to use the disciples as examples for us to evaluate or examine and to emulate, write that down in your outlines. 
Now this is really important. The Bible says that all the things that Scripture writes down are there to serve as examples for us. So all that we're going to see in the Gospels and the New Testament about these men are to serve for us as examples. Now before we just simply elevate and, and exalt them to a place of deity, we need to ask the question, what is good about them and what are things we may want to stay away from? So an examination needs to take place. And that examination is a good one because we too as followers of Jesus Christ need to be examining our own lives. But there is something really great in each of these men that we can emulate. Even, listen, even as we get into the life of Judas, there are some examples that we can emulate in the opposite. So these serve as examples for us to see them, to learn from their mistakes, to see the good that comes, and to utilize it. Max Lucado says it this way when he says the following. We need to remember that the first disciples were ordinary men called to an extraordinary mission. Their devotion to Jesus outweighed their fears and insecurities. As a result, God changed them and used them to accomplish some mind-boggling things. Why couldn't, why wouldn't God do the same in your life? Why wouldn't he do the same in my life? That's where we want to get to in this series. Could it be that God wants to do these things in us and what he's asking for us to do is to follow him in a deeper way starting today? So a couple of things about the disciples, just, just so we've got the biography of them and all of that. There were 12 of them, of course. They're called disciples. You know, right away, that's a word that you're like, yeah, of course, Jesus had disciples. Some of you are like, well, that sounds like a gang. Okay, what is a disciple? A disciple in the Greek literally is a learner, a student. These are students who followed their master, their teacher, their rabbi, Jesus. This idea of learning wasn't just learning information, but really mimicking the manner of life, the way of life of the teacher. So being a follower of Jesus Christ, being a believer, being a disciple of Jesus today isn't so you can recite the names of the disciples or have a lot of biblical information or knowledge. It is that you are one who have made it your purpose and your desire to follow the way of life that Jesus has modeled. That you live like Jesus and you love like Jesus and you act like Jesus and you think like Jesus. This is what the disciples did. They were learners. We will see the 12 of them are always broken up into three groups. Three groups of four. The reason why is it speaks of the significant place that the three groups might have had in the Bible, of course, the first group being Peter, James, John, and Andrew are the most prominent, but it also speaks of their proximity to Jesus. So that first four were the closest associates of Jesus, the second was the second closest, and then the third, the third closest. That doesn't mean Jesus didn't love them, it was just that he had a different level of relationship, earthly relationship, with these different groups of disciples. All of them were disciples. The next thing that we need to know is they were a varied group. Some were fishermen. 
Others worked for the government. Others wanted to destroy the government. I mean, think about this. This was a motley group, a motley crew of people. We also know that uh, the one similarity that they did have outside of all being men was that all of them said yes to the call of Jesus. So they're different. And this is a microcosm of the church. Here we are different, coming from all different approaches, having different viewpoints and, and ideas on a lot of peripheral uh, things and events. But when we come together or where we come together is that we all said yes to Jesus. We're all wanting to follow Jesus. So this brings us to Peter. Peter is the first of the names that is always listed first. And the reason why is many believe, and the Bible seemingly says this, that Peter was the leader of the 12. He was the captain of this team. Jesus was the coach, he was the teacher, he was the master, of course he was Savior and Lord. But when it came to who did the group look to amongst the mere mortals that these men were, it was Peter. Now, Peter was called to follow Jesus, and we're going to be in the Bible, but we're going to be bouncing around, so write these passages down for you to look at um, later. Matthew 4, 18 through 20. Matthew 4, 18 through 20 tells us that Peter is called by Jesus. He learns about Jesus from his brother Andrew, and he right away leaves everything he has to follow Jesus, to follow that command. There was something in Jesus that Peter saw that, that attracted Peter to this ministry. What do we know about Peter? Not very much before he meets Jesus, but we know this, that before he meets Jesus, Peter is married. In Mark chapter 1, verses 30 and 31, we are told that one of the first miracles that Jesus will perform is the healing of Peter's mother-in-law. And so, just so you know, if you have a mother-in-law, you have a wife. We don't know her name, but we also see in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul is talking about how all the disciples are out doing the work of the Lord. And he says, and hey, not only are, them, are they doing it, but many of them take their wives on the journey as well. And one of the names that he brings up of those who takes his wife doing, to do the work of the ministry is Peter. And so Peter's wife, no doubt, was a believer, a follower of Jesus Christ in her own right. We don't know if they have any children. There's no mention of children. It doesn't mean they didn't. It just weren't mentioned in the Bible. We know that Peter probably was similar ages to Jesus. Uh, some scholars believe that Peter may have been a little older than Jesus, but a peer of Jesus, which would make him in his late 20s or early 30s. Now, remember this. When we do our studies of these guys, these are young guys. And so me, at 47 years of age, it's really easy for me to be like, why aren't they more mature? Why aren't they more experienced? Why, why don't they have more wisdom? Well, they're young men. And they're, they're working through what it means to, to understand the world and life. And so they're, they're young guys. We know that he came from a place in the area of Galilee, near the Sea of Galilee, a town, a city, by the name of Capernaum, a fisherman's town. And he did work with his three closest associates, his brother Andrew, and their friends, the brothers James and John, the sons of Zebedee. 
And they either were in business together or they were just close hometown friends. They did life together and they would make up the closest circle of associates for Jesus. Now, with all that said, fisherman, Capernaum, married, what do we need to know about his first encounter with Jesus? Upon the first encounter with Jesus, Jesus does something to Peter that is really important, and I don't think many of us as Bible students even think about it. We read it, and we see it, and we don't know what to make of it, but Jesus meets up with Peter, and one of the first things that happens is kind of an odd thing. Because what happens is, is Peter meets Jesus, and Jesus says, I want to do something. Now, I've already messed you up because I've told you, Peter, it's Simon of Capernaum. Simon is the birth name of what we know as Peter, the disciple Peter. So Simon approaches Jesus, and we don't know if it's because it's a physical characteristic or a personality trait, uh, or it's where what I believe is where Jesus wants to take Peter. Right away when Simon meets Jesus, Jesus says, hey, you're no longer Simon. I've got a nickname for you. You're going to be Peter Petros, Rock, Stone, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make you that. Nicknames have a way of kind of helping people understand who you are or what you're all about. When I was in high school, I had gotten kicked out of a class. And as I was getting kicked out of a class, one of my friends, who was right on the tails of getting kicked out of the class, said, hey, Bidal! good luck in the principal's office and he stops and he's yelling as I'm leaving the classroom he says Badal Badal B-A-D-A-L you're bad in class you're bad in school you're bad in sports you're bad out from that moment on I was no longer Tim I was bad out bad out my last name which is Badal bad out became my nickname it became a moniker uh, the teacher said that they should put on my diploma bad out this is who he is he's bad out a name tells us something so why does jesus call simon petros peter rock rocky because that name tells us a little bit something of what jesus wanted to change in simon as he transformed him. Best way to put it, maybe some of you who are my age or, or older remember the Chevy commercials, the Chevy truck commercials where Bob Seeger is singing like a rock. And it became the motto for the Chevy truck line, buy Chevy because your truck will be like a rock. And the commercials would be all about the Chevy trucks doing all of these crazy things and Bob Singer singing like a rock. I don't know why today's a singing sermon, but it is, okay? And it's like a rock. Why? They wanted you to know that their trucks were durable, resilient, could stand the test against any trial, any trouble. It is my belief that what Jesus is doing is saying, I'm going to take you, Simon, and I'm going to make a rock out of you. A resilient, resolute, 
rugged, strong, durable. The world can come against you and you will stand against it. I need that type of witness when I leave this world and you're going to be one of my chief spokesmen. You're going to be a rock. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew. I want to show you this. Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. One of the great moments of Peter's life Peter is, man, he is on top of the world in this moment because this is where he, he nails it. Matthew chapter 16, starting in verse 13. You're gonna see this play on words take place. And maybe you've read this scripture and you've never seen this before, and hopefully this is in, uh, enlightening for you. This is what it says. When Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, some of, you, some of them say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. So that's the working consensus of the, of the crowd. Then Jesus turns to the disciples and says, who do you say that I am? Now notice what Matthew does. Matthew gives us both names of the guy that we're preaching about today, Simon Peter. Because he doesn't want us to wonder what's happening here. He's put, this is Simon Peter who's gonna answer. Simon Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, and notice what he says, blessed are you, and what does he say? Help me out for those that are there. What name? Simon. And then he says, Simon bar Jonah. Simon, son of Jonah. Simon, the name that your dad gave you. That's how Jesus responds to him. He says, for flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. You're the rock. What Jesus is doing here, I believe in all my heart, is that he is saying, Peter, before this proclamation, you were just a man. You were just like every other man. But when you made a decision to proclaim that I am the Christ, the Son of the living God, everything changes. Your name changes. And you become the rock that I want to transform you into being. And that's a word, remember, we don't exalt these guys into something. That's what Jesus wants to do for every one of us. He wants to take bad Al and turn him into a pastor. He wants to take you a sinner and me a sinner and make us into saints. He wants to take us who are blind and give us sight. He wants to change the very fabric of who we are to have the old be in the past and the new to come. When we follow Jesus, everything changes. Everything changes. And here Simon is reminded, that's what I was and this is what I am now because of Jesus. Can you say that this morning? I have been so transformed by Jesus that everything has changed. Now, what do we know about him? You're like, man, we haven't even gotten into the points yet. More, my goodness, okay? So let's understand some things. What do we need to know about Peter? Let's appreciate his passion. Peter is a passionate individual. Peter is a guy who is a man of action. 
Peter is a guy who is not afraid to talk. Peter is loud. He is obnoxious. He is full of passion. He's not afraid of what other people feel or think about him. I don't know who you think might be like him, but he is my kind of guy. I mean, this guy is a ready, fire, aim guy. This is a guy who is willing to stand in the gap. He's an action, passionate man. And this passion caused him to be impulsive, caused him to be impetuous, but God is going to use this impetuous, impulsive, passionate man to be a leader. And why? Write these three characteristics down. Number one, he was inquisitive. He was inquisitive. Peter asked more questions of Jesus and the Christian life than all the other disciples combined in the Gospels. And I think there's a truth for us in our Christian life that we need to be. I think for many of us, we're like the 11, that we just, okay, Jesus is saying stuff, I don't understand it, I don't get it, but I have a simple faith, I have a childlike faith, and I'll just leave it there. No, Peter tells us, and Peter shows for us, that we need to dig into stuff. This is our eternity at stake. This is our savior. This is our hope in this world. Maybe you should understand the diagnostics of it a little bit more, how it operates. Peter shows us that. Questions were good things for Peter, and I think they're good for us to ask as well. Number two, Peter took the initiative. Peter took the initiative. Like your pastor, Peter often doesn't wait for permission, but he just asks for forgiveness. And maybe you find yourself there. He acts. And we need people to act. In fact, can I say this? Um, and I say this to more of our introverted friends in the room. And you'll have some other people that will come, other disciples that will come that will fit you and then we'll talk to the extroverts and say we can learn from the introverts. But let's sit with the extroverts and what we can learn, all of us can. We are far too passive in our faith. We are far too passive in our faith. Peter takes the initiative. He took the initiative in a lot of ways. Number one, he took the initiative when Jesus is walking on the water and the disciples are in the boat, Peter sees Jesus and he takes the initiative and says, Jesus, can I come out there with you? Just tell me and I'll, I'll come out there. And he steps out on the water and he walks on water. Could it be that some of us are not experiencing the great things God wants us to show because in our timidity, in our passivity, we are unlike Peter, in a positive way, taking the initiative instead of waiting and tipping our toes in the water every once in a while and saying, yeah, no, it's too, it's too difficult, it's too hard. He took the initiative. Now, that's a double-edged sword. He took the initiative when Jesus is arrested. He pulls his sword, he swings his sword, he cuts off the ear of one of the Roman soldiers, and Jesus rebukes him. So initiative isn't always right. It can be impulsive and impetuous, and Jesus rebukes him for that. So we've gotta be careful with our initiative, but we need a little more initiative in this day. Finally, he was involved or invested. You can use whatever word you want, involved or invested. Every scripture, except for one episode, every scripture 
that speaks of Peter has him connected either to Jesus or to the other disciples. He is connected in his comings and goings with Jesus or the other disciples. Boy, I could preach a whole sermon on this. As followers of Jesus Christ, every episode of our life should be connected to Jesus and the other followers of Jesus. And in this summer, I, I just can I just, just take a moment? In this summer, where we as followers of Jesus here in America say we don't have to take our faith as seriously, where other things can crowd our calendars, let me ask you, is your priority Jesus and the other followers of Jesus first and foremost? That before you start taking things off the table, that you ask the question as Peter did, I'm going to be invested in this. And here's why. The only time we don't see Peter involved and invested with Jesus or his people is when he denies Jesus. And can I just tell you that I think there's greater opportunity for us to fall to temptation and sin when we're apart from Jesus and his people than when we're with them. Not a guarantee, but I think the probability is a whole lot higher. And Peter learns that and knows that and compels in his two letters to the church, First and Second Peter, to not give that up. So these are the things we should appreciate. Now, now let's avoid some pitfalls very quickly. Let's avoid some pitfalls. Uh, we know some pitfalls. Turn in your Bibles for a moment to John chapter 18. Now, if you've been with us for any amount of time, you're like, John, we were just in John. In fact, I preached John 18 a year ago next week. And I did so under the heading, Epic Fail. The Epic Fail of Peter. So I'm not gonna spend a lot of time here, uh, but, but I want you to know that in Peter's falling from grace, his denial of Jesus on the night that Jesus was betrayed comes because of three things. And I'll do this very quickly, and you can go and listen back to the sermon when you have time. But he did three things that we need to avoid. Number one, in that failure, he delighted in his own greatness. Jesus tells all the disciples, you all are going to leave me. You're going to all desert me. Nobody says anything except for Peter. He takes the initiative and he says, they all may leave you, Jesus, but I won't. I'm with you. I'm better than them. I'm holier than them. I'm wiser than them. I'm going to stay the course. And some of us right now are delighting in our own greatness too much. Avoid that. Pride cometh before the fall. He's arrogant, and some of us are arrogant in our faith. Peter is even taken aside by Jesus, and Jesus says to him, uh, listen, Satan's going to sift you like wheat. He's going to tempt you. He's going to test you. And instead of listening to the warnings, the second thing that Peter did that we need to uh, be careful of to avoid is he dismissed the warnings. So here, Peter's haughty. The warning has been declared, be careful. Temptation is out there. He dismisses the warnings. And then the trial, the moment of testing comes, and Peter desires comfort more than his calling. 
How many of us have deserted or denied Jesus for the sake of comfort over calling? That's what Peter does. And he could have not done that had he not delighted in his own greatness, had he not dismissed the warnings of Jesus. In fact, he thinks he's so great that when Jesus tells Peter about this, it tells us in Matthew 16, 23, that Peter rebukes Jesus. I mean, my goodness. <laughs> it takes a bold man to rebuke the King of kings and the Lord of lords. But how many of us have done that? Maybe not in words, but in action. We've said, God, you don't know what's best for me, but I do. You don't know what I need, but I do. I'm going to go my own way. So there are things to appreciate about Peter. There are definitely things to avoid. But let's remember, at the end of the Gospel of John, Peter is a shell of his former self. He had come so far, and he had failed so miserably, that by John 19, he is wondering if God will ever be able to use him again. And some of you maybe today have gone the life of Peter, where you started out really, really well, there were some great changes happening, you had some victories along the way, and then an epic fail came. And now you're wondering, because of shame and guilt, will I ever get there again? Well, I want to remind you of what John 20 and 21 says, that Jesus goes and finds Peter. And he restores Peter through the forgiveness of sins. And that same Jesus wants to forgive all the modern day Peters today. And he wants to send you out as new people. And what we will read in the New Testament, the day of Pentecost, through the book of Acts, to the writings of the letters of First and Second Peter, Peter runs the race. He fights the good fight. He finishes it. And he does it well. And so we, as we close this out, come to communion. And my third point is for us. Here we come to communion. And communion, every remembrance of communion for Peter would be a striking one. It was the day that he blew it. It was the day he failed. And as we look at Peter, remember, these are examples that we are to examine and emulate. And so Peter serves as this example. And so my third point is this, that moves us right into our time of communion. We need to assess our own pathway. How's our walk? And as we come to communion, I want to ask three questions, three episodes from the life of Peter that I want you to think about. Number one, as you examine your heart, as the Bible tells us to before communion, ask the question, like Peter, am I at times more talk than walk? Am I more talk than walk? Do I talk a bigger game than I live out? Do I talk well about my Christian faith when Christians are around, but when I'm with ungodly people, I do ungodly things? Communion is the opportunity for us to seek forgiveness and for Jesus to give us that new name and give us that new opportunity. Number two, am I willing to be bold and step out of the boat? Maybe there's something right now, and maybe this time of communion is a time where Jesus, by the Spirit, has been calling you to something. He's been calling you as he called out to the disciples on that night on the Sea of Galilee. And he's calling you to something. But like the other disciples, you're unwilling to take that bold step. 
You're unwilling to go where Jesus is at. And you think that that's just too much, it's too hard, that's, that's asking too much of me. Maybe today during this time of reflection, it is time for you and I to step out of the boat and step out in faith. And finally, am I willing to move beyond my failures to pursue faithfulness? Peter is an example of an epic failure who Christ changed and forgave. And in that second chance, Peter used it to glorify God. And as we are forgiven, as we are renewed, this time of communion is for us to commit to a new day of faithfulness, to give God the glory that's due his name. So as the worship team plays, would you just for a couple of moments go to the Lord and maybe ask yourself one of these three questions and seek forgiveness where it's needed, ask and pursue commitment where it may be needed, and let's ask for the Lord by his spirit to change us and transform us.